Section twenty six of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter forty nine. London, September fifth, Old Style, seventeen forty eight. Dear boy, I have received yours with the enclosed German letter to Mr. Gravenkop, which he assures me is extremely well written, considering the little time that you have applied yourself to that language. As you have now got over the most difficult part, pray go on diligently and make yourself absolutely master of the rest. Whoever does not entirely possess a language will never appear to advantage, or even equal to himself, either in speaking or writing it. His ideas are fettered, and seem imperfect or confused, if he is not master of all the words and phrases necessary to express them. I therefore desire that you will not fail writing a German letter once every fortnight to Mr. Gravenkop, which will make the writing of that language familiar to you and, moreover, when you shall have left Germany and be arrived in Turin, I shall require you to write even to me in German, that you may not forget, with ease, what you have with difficulty learned. I likewise desire that while you are in Germany, you will take all opportunities of conversing in German, which is the only way of knowing that or any other language accurately. You will also desire your German master to teach you the proper titles and superscriptions to be used to people of all ranks, which is a point so material in Germany, that I have known many a letter returned unopened, because one title in twenty has been omitted in the direction. St. Thomas's day now draws near, when you are to leave Saxony to go to Berlin, and I take it for granted that if anything is yet wanting to complete your knowledge of the state of that electorate, you will not fail to procure it before you go away. I do not mean, as you will easily believe, the number of churches, parishes, or towns, but I mean the constitution, the revenues, the troops, and the trade of that electorate. A few questions, sensibly asked, of sensible people, will produce you the necessary informations, which I desire you will enter in your little book. Berlin will be entirely a new scene to you, and I look upon it in a manner as your first step into the great world. Take care that step be not a false one, and that you do not stumble at the threshold. You will there be more in company than you have yet been, Manners and attentions will therefore be more necessary. Pleasing in company is the only way of being pleased in it yourself. Sense and knowledge are the first and necessary foundations for pleasing in company, but they will by no means do alone, and they will never be perfectly welcome if they are not accompanied with manners and attentions. You will best acquire these by frequenting the companies of people of fashion, but then you must resolve to acquire them, in those companies, by proper care and observation for I have known people, who, though they have frequented good company all their lifetime, have done it in so inattentive and unobserving a manner, as to be never the better for it, and to remain as disagreeable, as awkward, and as vulgar, as if they had never seen any person of fashion. When you do go into company, by good company is meant the people of the first fashion of the place, observe carefully their turn, their manners, their address, and conform your own to them. But this is not all, neither. Go deeper still. Observe their characters, and pray, as far as you can, into both their hearts and their heads. Seek for their particular merit, their predominant passion, or their prevailing weaknesses, and you will then know what to bait your hook with to catch them. Man is a composition of so many and such various ingredients, that it requires both time and care to analyze him. For though we have all the same ingredients in our general composition, as reason, will, passions, and appetites, yet the different proportions and combinations of them in each individual 
produce that infinite variety of characters, which in some particular or other, distinguishes every individual from another. Reason ought to direct the whole, but seldom does. And he who addresses himself singly to another man's reason, without endeavouring to engage his heart in his interest also, is no more likely to succeed than a man who should apply only to a king's nominal minister, and neglect his favourite. I will recommend to your attentive perusal, now that you are going into the world, two books, which will let you as much into the characters of men as books can do. I mean, Les Réflexions Morales de Monsieur de Rochefacot and Les Caractères de Briard. But remember, at the same time, that I only recommend them to you as the best general maps to assist you in your journey, and not marking out every particular turning and winding that you will meet with. There your own sagacity and observation must come to their aid. La Rochefoucauld is, I know, blamed, but I think without reason, for deriving all our actions from the source of self-love. For my own part, I see a great deal of truth, and no harm at all in that opinion. It is certain that we seek our own happiness in everything we do, and it is as certain that we can only find it in doing well, and in conforming all our actions to the rule of right reason, which is the great law of nature. It is only a mistaken self-love that is a blamable motive, when we take the immediate and indiscriminate gratification of a passion or appetite for real happiness. But am I blamable if I do a good action, upon account of the happiness which that honest consciousness will give me? Surely not. On the contrary, that pleasing consciousness is a proof of my virtue. The reflection which is the most censured in Monsieur de la Rochefacot's book is a very ill-natured one, is this. On trouvait dans la mahore de son meilleur ami quelque chose qui ne déplaît pas. And why not? Why may I not feel a very tender and real concern for the misfortune of my friend, and yet at the same time feel a pleasing consciousness at having discharged my duty to him, by comforting and assisting him to the utmost of my power in that misfortune? Give me but virtuous actions, and I will not quibble and chicane about the motives. And I will give anybody their choice of these two truths, which amount to the same thing. He who loves himself best is the honestest man, or the honestest man loves himself best. The characters of La Bruyere are pictures from life, most of them finely drawn and highly coloured. Furnish your mind with them first, and when you meet with their likeness, as you will every day, they will strike you the more. You will compare every feature with the original, and both will reciprocally help you to discover the beauties and the blemishes. As women are a considerable, or at least a pretty numerous part of company, and as their suffrages go a great way toward establishing a man's character in the fashionable part of the world, which is of great importance to the fortune and figure he proposes to make in it, it is necessary to please them. I will, therefore, upon this subject, let you into certain arcana that will be useful for you to know, but which you must, with the utmost care, conceal and never seem to know. Women, then, are only children of a larger growth. They have an entertaining tattle, and sometimes wit. But for solid reasoning, good sense, I never knew in my life one that had it, or who reasoned and acted consequentially for four-and-twenty hours together. Some little passion or humour always breaks upon their best resolutions. Their beauty neglected or controverted, their age increased, or their supposed understandings depreciated, instantly kindles their little passions and overturns any system of consequential conduct, that in their most reasonable moments they might have been capable of forming. A man of sense only trifles with them, plays with them, humours and flatters them, 
as he does with a sprightly forward child. But he neither consults them about, nor trusts them with serious matters, though he often makes them believe that he does both, which is the thing in the world that they are proud of. For they love mightily to be dabbling in business, which, by the way, they always spoil, and being justly distrustful that men in general look upon them in a trifling light, they almost adore that man who talks more seriously to them, and who seems to consult and trust them. I say who seems, for weak men really do, but wise ones only seem to do it. No flattery is either too high or too low for them. They will greedily swallow the highest, and gratefully accept of the lowest, and you may safely flatter any woman from her understanding down to the exquisite taste of her fan. Women who are either indisputably beautiful or indisputably ugly are best flattered, upon the score of their understandings, but those who are in a state of mediocrity are best flattered upon their beauty, or at least their graces, for every woman who is not absolutely ugly thinks herself handsome, but not hearing often that she is so, is the more grateful and the more obliged to the few who tell her so. Whereas a decided and cautious beauty looks upon every tribute paid to her beauty only as her due, but wants to shine, and to be considered on the side of her understanding, and a woman who is ugly enough to know that she is so, knows that she has nothing left for it but her understanding, which is consequently, and probably, in more senses than one, her weak side. But these are secrets which you must keep involubly, if you would not, like Orpheus, be torn to pieces by the whole sex. On the contrary, a man who thinks of living in the great world must be gallant, polite, and attentive to please the women. They have, from the weakness of men, more or less influence in all courts. They absolutely stamp every man's character in the beau monde, and make it either current or cry it down, and stop it in payments. It is, therefore, absolutely necessary to manage, please, and flatter them, and never to discover the least marks of contempt, which is what they never forgive. But in this they are not singular, for it is the same with men, who will much sooner forgive an injustice than an insult. Every man is not ambitious, or courteous, or passionate, but every man has pride enough in his composition to feel and resent the least slight and contempt. Remember, therefore, most carefully, to conceal your contempt, however just, wherever you would not make an implacable enemy. Men are much more unwilling to have their weaknesses and their imperfections known than their crimes, and if you hint to a man that you think him silly, ignorant, or even ill-bred, or awkward, he will hate you more and longer, than if you tell him plainly that you think him a rogue. Never yield to that temptation, which to most young men is very strong, of exposing other people's weaknesses and infirmities, for the sake either of diverting the company or showing your own superiority. You may get the laugh on your side by it for the present, but you will make enemies by it for ever, and even those who laugh with you then will, upon reflection, fear and consequently hate you. Besides that it is ill-natured, and a good heart desires rather to conceal than expose other people's weaknesses or misfortunes. If you have wit, use it to please, and not to hurt. You may shine like the sun in the temperate zones without scorching. Here it is wished for, under the line it is dreaded. These are some of the hints which my long experience in the great world enables me to give you, and which, if you attend to them, may prove useful to you in your journey through it. I wish it may be a prosperous one, at least I am sure that it must be your own fault if it is not. Make my compliments to Mr. Hart, who I am very sorry to hear is not well. I hope by this time he is recovered. Adieu. End of section 26. Read by Professor Heather and Bye. 
For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.